This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Tanya Ransom, creator and executive producer of Nightlight, a horror podcast featuring creepy tales written and performed by Black creatives from all over the world. This week, a helicopter mom that won't be stopped. But before we get to controlling creators, I want to say thanks to our newest patron, Constance. You too can enjoy ad-free episodes and help us pay a living wage to everyone who works to bring these stories to you. Just go to nightlightpod.com slash legion to join the Nightlight Legion and get a shout out on the podcast, plus occasional bonus content. You can also make a one-time donation to support us at nightlightpod.com slash donate. And don't forget, Nightlight merch is available and you can support us by sporting Nightlight branded gear. Just go to merch.nightlightpod.com to get your t-shirts, hoodies, notebooks, and more. Now sit back, turn out the lights, and enjoy To Present One's Heart, written by Megan Beffo and narrated by Sandy Green. It would be a beautiful thing to decorate as I pleased. I dream of a bedroom in shades of sage or baby blue. Often, I think I should very much like my mantelpiece painted in eggshell. Once, I had the audaciously playful thought to do up the kitchen in shades of peach and cream. My problem is that to do so would be murder. My mother was a thing of pure flesh. There was nothing of note behind her warm, dead eyes. Such people cannot be properly remembered or forgotten because they cannot live or die. My commemoration must be purely aesthete, and she loved lavender. I meet her every day in the questionable weight loss adverts and tabloid pages that formed the troubled cogs of her consciousness. But that is not enough. All it does is remind me of my daughterly obligations. She sticks to me, a horrible, undead creature haunting me always. Her ghostly demands wake me every morning in her pale purple womb. It feels like dying. I confess that I never use lavender soap. It irritates my skin, an excuse that my mother would understand. Sores and blemishes are not beautiful. Today, I have a welt on my hip, flesh pink and ugly. Last night, I hit it against a door. Careless Candace, she says. I press my thumb into the heart of the bruise to remind myself not to do so again. But I find myself shaking still, so I dress for battle. Scarlet lipstick to match red soles. 
I offset them with cream silk, an elegant blouse and matching scarf, tied delicately around my bag. Someone, I think wildly, dusting my cheeks with blush. Someone today will fall in love with me. The spider on the wall laughs at me. I ignore it, so it chants again. Closing my eyes and then opening them again makes it disappear, but it continues to chant. I am desperate, it says, delusional. I'm not surprised that it makes so much of the obvious. The beasts that my mother's ghost conjures are always rather stupid. The only real monster is mine, not hers. And that is not a case of haunting so much as it is possession. Before I leave every day, I open and close an empty bottle on my vanity. I tell myself that I have left my heart in there. It's a silly ritual, but I might embarrass myself otherwise. My mother is an irritant, but she was, is, right enough in that regard. Nobody wants someone that wants someone, especially if they have the gall to be honest about it. I sit at the office watching a colleague and despising myself. Her name is Emily. She has broad shoulders and thick calves, but dresses and socialises as if she's unaware of both facts. The room seems to orbit around what she says. The conversation lands briefly on everyone, circles back to her, never once touching on me. My mother would say she talks too much, but it is interesting talk. Friendly, warm, never impolite. I thought once about being Emily's friend, learnt quickly that I am not designed for chatter. I could feel her, feel everyone, losing interest, thinking, what a pretty girl she is, until she opens her mouth. I am at my best seen and not heard. It is a cold reality that has left me in dread of the workplace. I check my makeup in my compact mirror, one, two, three times. There is nothing wrong with my face, certainly nothing that dumpy Emily would not forgive. So I pick the pomegranate seeds out of my salad and decide that there must simply be something horrid and rotting in my insides that make me deeply unlikable. There is, somewhere distant, the urge to cry. But I hold that firmly at arm's length. Closer to the surface is the urge to join in, to reach out to a woman who clearly despises me and humiliate myself in an office full of people. That I most certainly will not do. Fool, says a voice that is not my mother's. It is barely even a voice. In fact, it is a snarl. One I recognize, although she has never disturbed my professional life before. Mumbling scattered apologies, I take refuge in the bathroom where I can look in the mirror. I like to keep an eye on my reflection. Sometimes I catch that my hair has strayed or that my lipstick has smudged during lunch and such an offence is best corrected before I leave. But it is on days like this, days where I feel everything far too intensely, where she is tutting in my ear and tapping on my spine, that I really need my reflection. It is calming. It is grounding. I smile. My mother crows something, but I ignore her still. Still smiling. So, Emily hates me. That's fine. She has ugly teeth. I look at mine as I wash my hands and conclude that there really is no reason to trouble myself thinking about her. So why do you? One of my mother's voices again. 
the word sting, but what really concerns me is their quietness. They have a soft edge, as if she knows to tread carefully. The wolf does not want to be eaten up, any more than Red Riding Hood does. I breathe in, and then out again. Normally, signs like that can be stifled in the comfort of my own home, but I'm in the office. There are people, cameras, and only one real entrance. If she isn't quiet, isn't it you that wanted to be loud? Asks the voice. My mother never did know when it would be best to shut up. Maybe you should go back up there and... The whining creature is swallowed by sound. The scream that comes first is my own, and it persists, high and wailing. But the woman rises with it, and then it turns into a roar, guttural and low. I try and clamp my fingers over my mouth, but the woman has never rejoiced in silence for appearance's sake. I think, in fact, she despises it. Always, she seeks to destroy what I refine. Her presence is something I have come to live with, but this is a new situation entirely. With no respect for the tightrope we are straddling, she has emerged in public. Not just in public, no, but my workplace's bathroom. Anxiety settles, writhing and rustling in the pit of my stomach. Someone is sure to discover my secret. The bathroom is empty at the moment, but someone might have heard the scream. I wonder if I should lock myself in a stall. The scream that comes next holds open my jaw, although the muscles in it flex and spasm in a mighty effort to close. I can feel some of the flesh beginning to tear. Somewhere in the midst of the pain, I find myself on my knees. All the better to crawl. The thought is distinctly mine, and I am startled for a moment. During past incidents in which the woman has taken hold, she has done so with no ambiguity to her grip. This is more of a joining, a merging. She screams again at that, and I think of it as an expression of delight. Naturally, at that which I have always dreaded. The prospect of our becoming one. The idea repels me, and I resist her. Now, the pain is staggering. I am aware that I am heaving blood and flesh upon the floor and want to clean it, but have lost the capacity to do anything but crawl and scream. I couldn't possibly shed my tights in a public bathroom, so I shuffle into a stall with as much delicacy as the situation allows. I kick off my shoes first, so as not to bend them. This for some reason enrages her and the third scream is hideous. I can feel the blood sliding down my neck. The pain has bent my mind into something calm and empty. Once behind the locked door, I scramble for tissue. There is no point in trying to stop the bleeding, so I simply do my best to pad the shoulders and neckline of my blouse. The tissue darkens until my fingers are red and then becomes pulpy mush in frustration. I fling it, throw my mother to the wind and begin working at the buttons. I know on a rational level that it is not so terribly transgressive. It is not as if I could walk out of work with the white silk stained red. What would they say then? But I am not in the mood for rationality and not when my throat is threatening to rise to my teeth and the simple truth is that I have never felt 
so guilty in my life. My fingers scrape and fumble at the buttons. Purr, pretty, tasteful. And I all but rip the blouse away. My bralette is lilac, fashioned with a bow, demure as the ones my mother brought me when I started to bloom. That thought draws out the next scream. With it, my entire face seizes, and for a terrifying moment, I think I'm going to choke like this. That this is the condition in which they will find my body. But I don't. The pain begins to ebb, and I rise to my feet. I am half proud, half terrified. I have never before felt her ghost with such strength, and then risen as myself without incident. Against the lavender lace, my scarlet nails are garish and attention-seeking, and the blood smeared across my breast nothing but a further humiliation. I can think of nothing worse than leaving the bathroom. I want to curl up and hyperventilate. That is what I have always done once the woman has let me go, but this time my hands are clamping, terrified around my jaw. This time she has not. That knowledge turns the mirror, my most beloved friend, to an enemy. I do not want to look, but I have to face it if I am to wash myself efficiently. And that is of the utmost importance. Any moment someone could come in and see me, blood dripping down my bare torso, and with her mouth. That thought is enough for me to steal myself and unlock the door. The transformation is somehow far worse to look at with the rest of my body left intact. The seams of my jaw have been ripped open and much of the skin of my face has been stripped back to expose my slipping skull. Her bones protrude from my gums, but my own teeth are still visible, hanging, useless and suspended within the cavern of my dropped mouth. I let out a shuddering breath. That too is painful and I blink back the tears there is no time for them I reach for the silk scarf I have on my handbag handle my stomach twists to do it but it's the only thing I have that might bind my mouth I knot it as tightly as I can padding what I can with tissue but it seems inevitable that some blood will seep through the scarf thankfully is quite long I unfold it to its fuller width and tie it so it hangs below my chin, successfully concealing the lower half of my face. The rest passes like a dream. I soak my blouse in cold water and sponge away the blood that's dried on my shoulders and neck. I still look a state once I'm done, of course, but everything's slightly less alarming. I put on my shoes, I pick up my handbag, I walk out with my head fixed in place so as not to aggravate my jaw and my thighs rubbing together so nobody can see that my tights have laddered. The receptionist, Lucy, expensive manicure, cheap haircut, rises to her feet when she sees me. Her hand slides automatically towards her phone. Don't worry, I say as evenly as I can. It's a dental issue. My voice sounds strange and discordant and I wince to hear it, even though she will probably just put it down to whatever she supposes is wrong with my teeth. It always looks worse than it is, I continue at her widely blinking eyes, and the implication that this is a recurring problem seems to calm her down. The lie only makes me feel more flustered, although I am sure the woman is laughing. 
A repetitive dental issue is hardly a glamorous predicament. Lucy laughs a little, more out of nervousness than malice, but I know I will recall it with a mocking sting tomorrow. I convince her to abandon the idea of a hospital, but she continues to insist on calling a cab. My smile, if I could have one, would be strained. She seems kind enough. I decide that it is safe to plead. You won't tell anyone around the office, will you? I say in my head, imagining the way I will pitch my voice. I will let loose the woman just a little so she can hear a painful crack. I'm a bit embarrassed about it. Yes, that should do. A pound of flesh for a secret kept. I open my mouth, prepared, and then she speaks again. Oh, Mr. Shrewsbury. She sounds flustered. Sit down, I'll be with you in just a minute. I'm sorry to keep you waiting, but we have something of an emergency over here. It's a client. A male client. I feel so much and so little that another spasm grips me. I try and muffle the screen, but the choking noise that emerges still has Lucy darting out from behind her desk and Mr. Shrewsbury approaching me. He is tall and well-dressed, and I think that I might cry. I do. He is very sympathetic. My goodness, have you called anyone, Miss Clark? Lucy shakes her head breathlessly. I, she didn't want me to. I think she said it's happened before. Not too often, I say desperately, flinching away from their expectant looks. I should have it corrected soon. I have, I have called my dentist. He'll be seeing me today instead of the agreed upon time. And, and there's no need to call a cab. I've done so myself. You can't possibly catch a cab, says Mr. Shrewsbury. His tone is gentle, almost absurdly so considering my situation. Perhaps his eyes have slipped down to my inoffensive lower half. It is true enough that I haven't been concentrating. I'm only here to drop off some papers, Miss Clark. I'm more than happy to offer my own services. Something laughs cruelly. It's not my mother, nor one of her voices. She must be horrified to hear of me riding in a car with a strange man. But she does not protest, because she too can sense the woman, hovering, still present, almost breathless in her intrigue. We agree only on matters of love. There's no telling what she might do should I rebuff him. His car is perfect, and I want to ask questions about it, but could not possibly so early on. It would seem crass. I am thrilled to be here, thrilled to be with him. This strange, strong creature who seems a better suitor with every second glance. I wish I hadn't met him today, with my mask fragmented by the pain and the woman so close to the surface. There is simply too much capacity for mistake. Where is your dental office, Miss Greenlaw? My nails dig into my wrist. Please, Candace. He pushes his chin forward in consent. And Henry, then. He smiles, gently, slowly. He can sense my distress, I realize. He wants to calm my nerves. Candace, where am I driving you to? My home, please. He raises an eyebrow. Are you sure? Yes, he's agreed to make a house call. I wrap my hands into one another. I told him that things today were quite severe. 
He backs off at that and wires the postcode I give him into his car. We listen to a classical music station. I wonder if that's his general practice or if he has deliberately chosen something he thinks will be soothing. I am not sure which option I prefer. I hope you're not in too much pain, Candace. It looks much worse than it is, I say. Really, I add, when he seems unconvinced. He hums a little below his breath. It's not anxiety and he doesn't quite believe me either. He simply doesn't wish to overstep. He is perfect. You're sure you'll be fine home alone? Invite him in, says the woman. I can feel her teeth rattling with the joy of it and I shudder. Have him watch over us, she insists louder. Ask him to stay. I could not possibly, I say as much aloud. It's no worry to me at all, he says. You're very kind, but I'm sure I'll be fine. I'll get home and change my blouse and by then he should be here. My fingers flutter, a nervous reaction, towards my shoulders where it's stained. I hope it's not ruined. Idiot, the voice says, harsh as such an action requires. And I close my eyes, mortified by my mistake. Hopefully he has not followed my hands to the stain, but then why would he not? Already he must be inwardly grimacing, reminded of the bloody nature of such an issue. Hoping that I don't ruin the interior of his car, no doubt. I want to cry again. Normally, given the extremity of the circumstances, such a thing would be acceptable, but I have blundered too much already. You'll forgive me, I say, and his eyebrow quirks. He must be sceptical of my apology. I have gone down in his estimation and the thought fragments my voice. For, for inconveniencing you. And going on about my blouse, I'm very particular about clothes. He smiles, and I recognize this smile. It is indulgent. I'm a woman, he is thinking, and more delicate than most. I am in pain and disoriented and embarrassed. It is expected for me to be nervous and awkward. It is no wonder that I am worried about my clothes. He has forgiven me. It is a blinding act of mercy. Not at all. Between you and me, I wasn't very much looking forward to the rest of the workday anyway. I know that I should follow up, understand in what capacity he is associated with the company, but I fail to. Perhaps that, at least, is for the best. I feel muddled and I'm not sure that I could handle such delicate conversation without destroying my salvation. My mother is what I end up saying instead. She too, she was very particular. He can hardly accuse me of rudeness, not when I am in such a state, but the humiliation of it spears me anyway. What does my mother have to do with anything? Mr. Shrewsbury just nods again. I wonder if there is a different set to his jaw, or if I have imagined it, and commit myself to an understandable silence for the rest of the journey. The woman howls and growls and snaps her jaws, irritated by my silence. Fresh blood has seeped through my scarf by the time we have arrived. I dab at it, desperately, as best as I can. Luckily, he is distracted. I can see his eyes lingering on the impressive red brick house, the well-kept flower beds, 
the tasteful knocker. He might come away thinking that he has simply met me in unfortunate circumstances. Things might be alright after all. It is that thought and that thought alone that gives me strength enough to suppress her. You're sure you don't want me to wait with you? He says, glancing again at the scarf, red on white. I want to die. It's quite alright, I say shakily. You've done so much. Thank you so much. The words sound too indebted, too unused to kindness, too close to the truth for polite conversation. Mr. Shrewsbury, Henry, he had told me to call him, with such a dashing smile, does not reprimand me for it. He gets in the car with one lingering glance back. I cannot tell what it means. Attraction, repulsion, pity. The possibilities are endless. I would happily take a mixture for some assurance that the first is true. I bathe to calm down, and I do, even though I can still see my stained blouse and laddered tights discarded on the floor. I wish I'd had the foresight to put them straight in the washing basket, but I didn't. I was too upset. We should take care of our things, my mother says, and I flinch at the reprimand. She is behind me, comforting as she scolds, washing my hair with her grey, bloated fingers, letting out a steady stream of platitudes. You're a beautiful girl, she tells me. Then she sighs wistfully. Oh, to be young and have your figure again. You see what I mean? That she is meaningless, timeless, in the worst way possible, but she is my mother and that is enough. The bath bomb is lavender. I keep them in the cupboard as a monthly duty. I use them also in moments like these when I need to cleanse. Today, I obviously do. I hold my head under water for as long as I can, rise with my mouth puckering and my eyes stinging, a baptism. But I do not feel pure, so I scrub my nails until they are flushed pink and clean of red. Whore, a voice reprimands. I can ignore it. I am redeemed now. But still, the woman will not leave. If anything, she struggles more. I can feel her writhing, a snake luring and dragging me down to hell. The effort of holding her in after such a horrible day has me sobbing. When I begin to properly cry, she finally recedes. I think she does feel pity in her own twisted way, but I do not want to think that of her. I hate her. I repeat fiercely in my head, I hate her. And for that reason, I cannot sit there whimpering into my own knees. I rise a new woman. We, I, go into my room, my lovely lavender room. I wipe away what is left of my blood. I exfoliate, I cleanse, I put on my prettiest nightgown and gloss my lips and oil my hair and fall right into bed. Frilled monstrosity though it is, there's something comforting about the tomb today. I am considering only satin nightgowns and romance. I am seeing only prim purple curtains. And for once, the two together have a singular focus. I must redeem myself to Henry.
I stare at my empty teacup for 35 minutes before I have strength enough to contact work. This, I think, is the kind of thing a corporeal mother would be good for. She never understood my fear of phone calls. I won't be here forever, she used to say. She was right, and she was wrong. It is, in the end, far less nerve-wracking than I expected. They are so accommodating, in fact, that I wonder if Lucy the receptionist broke her word and mentioned details of the dental issue to my manager. The thought has my face flushing with mortification. Hatred rises within me, hot and burning for a few moments before I swallow it. Absurdly, it is with that final repression that something crumbles. This is not the cursed half-transformation I suffered in the bathroom, but the woman as I have previously known her in her full entirety. I can feel her breath upon my spine, swelling with the weight of the wind until the whole thing snaps, bends and then tears. It goes through the flesh of my back, the bones of my fingers tear too, through the neatly made beds of my nails. Copper swells in my mouth, slides down my chin and neck. My jaw has stretched and spasmed into her hideous mouth again. My neck distends, my stomach swells, and each rib breaks free of its place, pulled through the skin of my torso. That, I know, will fall away. The woman presents her heart. I kick against her in the only way I can, in mind rather than body. She can possess me, destroy me, take me over, but I will not be one with her. I will not feel what she feels. When severed from her, existences, if only for a while, not so dissimilar to sleep. It is when I wake that I have to clean up her mess. This time, she grasps onto Henry. She wants him too, of course. I slip away, knowing that even as I fade, she has hold of one thread of me. That is all that is needed for everything to unravel. Emily and Lucy dine at my breakfast table the next morning. It is the kind of story my mother would read on the news. Have you seen it, Candice? She'd say. And then she'd recount all the horrific details, whether I wanted to hear them or not. This would gratify her for days. The two of them, beloved daughters, friends and colleagues to many, murdered and posed in their co-workers' dining room. They will be dearly missed. I'm horrified when I first see it. I cry and hyperventilate. I want to vomit at the stench. Emily is stripped and skinned, her heart laid out upon her plate. Lucy is the pig of the feast, gutted as any animal prepared for roasting, but otherwise intact. None of that disgusts me more than the part of me that understands. It is, if by intention alone, a gift. Crude and violent, and lacking in taste. Those, of course, are the markers of the woman, in all her unrefined glory but a gift nonetheless. Am I to take it? My mother was a great believer in intention, but I cannot sense her ghost at all. It seems that even she is horrified, or I dare to think that even she is purged. 
I brush the thought away. There is simply not time for such considerations. At first, I lived in dread of the woman's kills, but now I'm resigned to my routine. I must first slather everything I can in lavender oil, set up the diffusers, light the candles. I simply cannot stand for that smell. And then the bodies are buried beneath the bushes where they all go, in the very back of the garden where nobody goes but me. A husband might, if I had one, but I do not. A husband, I think tiredly, might also be useful for chores such as this. It would hardly hurt the woman to at least dispose of the corpses she creates. The callousness of the latter thought surprises me. Such a thing would be typical of my mother. I pinch the inside of my wrist to caution myself. Henry was so gentlemanly to drive me home. He surely would like a kind and nurturing woman. Henry. I still cannot sense my mother's wicked ghost, and I'm horrified and exhilarated by what that might mean. I go upstairs, without looking into my bedroom. I must bathe before I do anything else. It would hardly do to greet him like this, blood-soaked and sweaty and grimy with dirt. So I arrange my hair in ornate curls, crown myself in my best diamonds, I wear white. I look bridal. Henry is not dressed for the occasion. The woman never pays attention to such things, but he is on my bed where I expected him to be, untouched except for the heart. That, as is her mark, is exposed and open, bleaching the lavender grey of the sheets, clean and bright with red. I will have to light a candle here too. It is sad to see Henry, poor, kind Henry, in such a state, but there is little I can do for him now. Besides, of course, taking care of him as he took care of me, I vow to be understanding, respectful, of course, of his demise. Even as triumph runs through me like blood, my mother has fled. Finally, finally, she has gone. Because with a man in the house, things will have to change. It is only suitable that I accommodate his tastes. Now it is time to redecorate. Thanks again to our patrons for supporting this podcast. Because of your support, listeners around the world get creepy tales in their ears every other week. If you want new stories every week, the only way for that to happen is to join the Nightlight Legion by going to nightlightpod.com legion. You can also make a one-time donation via PayPal at nightlightpod.com donate. If you're unable to support us financially, word of mouth is the next best way to help. Written reviews are always the best way to help, so be sure to leave a few kind words on your podcast platform of choice. You can also rate us if you're in a hurry or give us a shout out on your favorite social media at nightlightpod or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash ransompodcasts. Audio production for this episode by Davis Walden. Join us next time, and be sure to leave your nightlight on. You never know who might be protecting you in the dark. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish.